I love mysteries and those whodunit things you read and you try to get clues as you read them to figure out what in the world happened and who did it. And what we have in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a real life case of a whodunit. And we get to see Paul on the trail of trying to figure out what happened and how to help the church to overcome it. It's a curious case of somebody imposter, being an imposter apostle who leads the church astray because they're so compelling in their presentation that the church believes it, but it's not true, and it leads them to be disturbed. We have a disturbed church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here, here's what's happening in this church, and just so you know it. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind. Their minds have been shaken. You ever had your mind shaken? I don't mean physical shaken. Your mind is rattled. And all of a sudden, something you were confident about is now confusing to you. And what you always thought you knew was true has been questioned, and now there's other things being shaken. That's what happened to this church. They were shaken in mind and alarmed. Their worldview was challenged and threatened by a new truth that had been presented to them, and it was causing confusion. He says, and it's, it, it's, it's by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Someone's presented a sermon. Someone has written something to them and forged Paul's name. There's something Paul doesn't really know who did it. He doesn't know how they did it, but he knows what they did. They came in there and said, hey, y'all, the judgment day is over. Resurrection's happening, and all that's ever going to happen is what's happening right now. And it just absolutely threw the believers into a, into a frenzy. Now, why would it do that? This is a small church that's being persecuted by a world of doubters. And they've been told by Paul that when the end comes, those doubters will be gone, the Christians will win, we will have our day, and we will live with God forever, and our dead loved ones who've gone on before us who were faithful, we get reunited with them. And they said, if that's all happened, and what we're living right now is all there is, it just totally shook their minds. Mentally, Emotionally, spiritually, they just were thrown into an absolute panic. And Paul it doesn't tell us who it was. He doesn't seem to care. But what he does tell us is how they're supposed to solve this. This is a spiritual crime stoppers scene, right? In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And, there's, and the reason why he doesn't care about who did it is because there's going to be somebody else after him. There's always going to be somebody going around preaching falsehood as truth that challenges what you know is true. And y'all, thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, that's no less true now than it was then. From the moment the gospel came into the world, counterfeits were offered and it disturbed Christians everywhere. We have people preaching today a message over the airways or maybe in a great book, a New York Times bestseller, that just gives a new twist on something of God and we, we are prone constantly to hear it and believe it. And that's what happened to this church. And there's going to be another one. So Paul says, I don't care who did it. What I want to do is train you not to be susceptible to this anymore. The Ephesian writer, Paul in Ephesians says, I don't want you tossed and thrown about by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. I don't want every new wave of teaching to come in and throw you off your tracks. 
I want you to stand, and I want you to know, and I want you to have confidence in what you know so you can live with joy rather than with constant panic and intrigue about all these compelling, good people with these words that are so enticing, but they aren't true. For the Thessalonians, this false doctrine shook them up. For us today, it's not as likely that way. For us today, it's more likely that a false teaching will come along and say, well, you can be who you, who you naturally are. You can, you can entice your, you can enjoy your natural self and not really have conformed to the image of Christ. You don't have to be holy. You don't have to be righteous. There's a reason why you can just be who you always have been. That's the kind of truth that's going around today. What do you do about this? Paul wants to tell us the story. And here's what you do. When you have a case of somebody telling you something and teaching something that's less than true, something that compromises the truth you know, how can you stand firmly rooted? And so, he says, first of all, I want you to know and I want you to review the truth. So I want to say it in a, in a kind of a rhyme here, okay? So I want you to remember this. This is something maybe you'll remember. Know and review what you know is true. Know and review what you know is true. Paul is saying to them, this should not have disturbed you, church. This should not have gotten you riled up. Why? Because verse 5, don't you remember I told you all this when I was with you? When I set this church up in Thessalonica, I told you these truths. I prepared you for this. We've gone over this. And then when a falsehood comes in, you get taken by surprise? You should take what you know and set aside everything else that's ever taught. And if whatever is taught is not lining up with this truth, you chunk this. You don't let it just totally throw you off. Not only that, he says, in the first two verses, how in the world can you believe something? We've written letters to you that are true, and you be thrown off by these letters that are not. How can you do this? We have Bible classes here every Sunday morning. A lot of people don't come to Bible class. I get it. Wednesday night, we have Bible classes. But can I tell you, that's, those classes are really, really important, and let me tell you why. It's not, it's not just so we can get together and have fun. It's not even to get together and make a devotional thought stretch for 45 minutes. We are equipping people to know the truth so that when you go back out into the world that teaches something else, you'll know the truth and be able to compare it with it. And if we use that 45 minutes as just goof-off time, we're just trying to fill it with something, we're going to do you a disservice because you're going to go out into a world that's preaching constantly and it's preaching falsehood and you won't even know it's falsehood because you don't have a truth in your head. We've got to know what's true and review it over and over and over again. Our classes are really important and I think sometimes we overlook that. Like it's an option for us. If they had taken what they knew from Paul as true, they wouldn't have fallen for this falsehood. They would have compared it. So Paul says, I want to review with you two truths I shared with you. First one is the, the last day. Let me tell you the way the last day is going to go. And Paul lays this out three times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When Christ comes on that last day, there will be a judgment. And those who are in Christ are going to rise up. 
the dead in Christ first and the living in Christ next, and we're going to join the Lord with the, join the Lord in the air and so be with him forever. Y'all, we are going to be the winners. And we're going to win because of Christ's victory, and we're going to enjoy the spoils of war for the rest of eternity. So, y'all Thessalonians, when they tell you that the, the end time's already coming and you're still living with all this persecution and all this trial and all this mess and you feel like a small group of people in an island of unbelievers, listen, if that's the case, the end hasn't come yet. Don't get all uptight about that. Vision number two from 2 Thessalonians 1. When the Lord comes down, not only will you get to go and enjoy the spoils of victory, but all the people who persecuted you, all the people who mocked the gospel, who never responded to the gospel, they will be ushered off into perpetual eternal timeout. They will not be in your life. You will not see them. They exit the picture. So if you're being persecuted right now or made to feel small or, you, or somebody's mocking the gospel, listen, you, the Lord has not come yet. Don't buy that stuff. And then scene number three, which is new. This is that complicated picture that was read just a moment ago. Here's the third, here's the third truth of that last day, which he shared with them in person, but this is the first time we're getting it in a letter from Paul. The evil one who's behind all evil in the world will finally be unveiled. He's already operating. Don't fool yourself. He's already in the world. Even by this time, he's, been, he's got a pretty good track record already. Every man of lawlessness who ever exists is actually backed by Satan himself. But he puts on this disguise of different people and different languages and doing different things. But every person of lawlessness who's trying to, 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 um, to mess up the gospel of truth, those people are out there working already. But you'll know it's the last day because when Jesus comes on that last day, I think it's before he judges, but I can't tell you exactly the itinerary. Before he judges everybody, he finally brings to our attention the true identity behind every lawless thing and person in the universe. He pulls off the disguise and he reveals Satan as the true force behind all evil. And it's done for him. It says, by the breath of Jesus' mouth, he overwhelms Satan and sends him to forever retire by the lake or in the lake of fire. That's what's gonna happen. So if that hasn't happened, if there's anything amiss in the world, if there's anything in the world that's not good, well then God's not done yet. Make you know that. If there's anything not good, well then God's not done yet and don't believe in all this other lies. Now this third image, I couldn't help but think of what I think is going to happen. Does anybody know what this image is? I've never seen this movie, but I've heard about it all my life. I may be the only one here who's never watched The Wizard of Oz. If you've never watched it, here's a bit of a spoiler alert. But if you haven't watched it and you've had 50 years, you're probably not going to see it this week. So, all the bad stuff happening as this movie unveils and this story unveils is done by this little bitty fella behind the curtain. All that bad stuff, he's orchestrating back there. And it's like he's got, everybody's so terrified of this monster. And then they pull back a curtain, it's this little, and here's what God's going to do. Jesus is going to do. He's going to pull back the curtain and say, y'all, all the misery and the dis injustice and all the wickedness and the evil and the false doctrine, it's this. And he pulls back and there's Satan. Or, here's a better image. Anybody seen this before? Yeah. This is great theology. Do you remember these shows? somebody's terrorizing the neighborhood. 
going around looking larger than life as this object nobody knows what it is, but it's subhuman or extra human or whatever. And the mystery machine, Scooby-Doo and his team must fight it and figure out how it, and it ends the same way every single time. Do you remember this? It ends like this. I want to say this so bad. I, I want to look at that and go, does that not look like Savannah Carlton? I swear. She's going to kill me for sure. They all figure out who it is. They get him all tied up, and finally the unveiling. They rip off the disguise, and oh, it's Mr. Turner. Oh, right? And then he looks at him with a pointed finger, or in this case, like down here, and he says, and I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids, right? That's how it is. This, this has got to happen before the day of the Lord's done. Jesus, I think it's his first order of business, maybe. Before he judges people, he judges Satan and gets him out of the way. And he says, this is the, what's caused all the trouble in all the world since it started. And he pulls off the mask, and there's Satan and whatever he looks like. And lo Satan looks up at Jesus, and I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you. And he's right. He would have made life miserable for every single human being if it wasn't for Jesus. And he unveils him, and the last day starts, and he judges people, and his people go off to be with him forever. Paul says, I want you to remember, I'll keep that in your head, and if you've got that in your head, church, live with this. Live with this image, and let your worldview be changed by this. Do you know what happens if you live with this worldview? You, you want to live your life righteously because you will be judged for what you do. Do you know why people decided to get rid of this? All the judgments already come and resurrections already come. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to. And if there's no real judgment, well, then they can do whatever. Their worldview doesn't include hell and judgment, but the Christian worldview does. There is no truth at all if there isn't a truth that God is going to make everything right and we're going to be judged for our actions. And it changes our worldview and how we see things. Don't let another truth come in that dispenses with that. They did in Thessalonica, and Paul says, you should have known better. You have enough truth. You don't just come here to hear a sermon and go, oh, that's delightful. Let's go eat lunch and just talk a little bit about the sermon and then something else. You're coming here to get instructions and reminders for how life really works and how you are supposed to go in the world. And when you hear other things that are not in line with this truth, I know they don't appear true, I get it. We'll talk about that in just a second. What we're saying from scripture is the truth of our lives, even if it doesn't seem to play out that way, and we've gotta live our lives by it. And so when you hear something else that's far less than this truth, don't get disrupted by it. Don't be tempted by it. Discard it. This truth is the truth from God to get you to God. Don't let anything take you away from it. Now there's a second truth he stresses. He's just letting us know this. I want you to know about the end time to straighten up this little conflict you're having right now, but I'm gonna go beyond this. Y'all, there's, there's gonna be another person come in and try to fool you. There's gonna be deceivers everywhere. I wish it wasn't like that. I wish we could teach our Bible 
classes as if this is the only truth in the world and the whole world's gonna conform to this and everybody you talk to is gonna agree with this, but I gotta tell you that's not true. When we tell you something often from scripture, you're gonna go out into a world that says, no, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. I don't. So there, you're gonna hear different truths out there. And I wish you could easily identify them. I wish the good guys all wore white hats and the bad guys all wore black hats. I wish it was a John Wayne world. But it's not. The way Jesus describes the world is that there are wolves out there, but, but they don't have big high ears and long teeth. Do you know what they're dressed up as? What are these wolves dressed up as? Huh? Sheep. Yeah, they go around, I'm telling the truth, I'm not bad, I'm not bad at all. Yeah, right, but they're a wolf dressed up like these sheep. That was a great impersonation. I'm, I'm sorry you missed out on really quality stuff the costume they put on because I'm going to tell you they're going to present it as so sweet and so right and it's going to sound compelling to your baser nature a lot but if you don't know the truth you will be led astray and it does hurt you and so he says uh, number one about Satan I want to give you a character study about Satan just real quick he says, this is a, a second truth I want you to know and review. Satan will try to interview, interview, intervene in the things of God and religion. I want you to know this very early in the chapter. Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. It doesn't mean that he's going into the temple and he's taking over. It means he's going to take over. He's going to try to take up everything that belongs to God and try to influence the world as if he's the God of the world. He's going to try to take over everything and use every avenue he can to get into your head. He uses world religions, human religions. He even uses Christianity. Maybe his most compelling thing that he does is he fakes spirituality. Can I tell you things can be spiritual but not biblical? You know this, right? Things can be spiritual but not biblical. Oh, well, that's a spiritual truth. It is a spiritual truth, but it's not a biblical one. So you've got to test the spirits to see whether they're from God or not, right? It can be spiritual and still be wicked. Here's how crazy it gets. Listen to this passage. For such men, 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles. They send up and they say, we've been sent by God. That's what an apostle is, sent by Christ, right? Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They put on their Christ costume or their apostle costume, right? And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Are you kidding me? I've always wanted to see an angel. Be careful because Satan looks like one. Just because you see an angel doesn't mean anything. An angel of light, it is no surprise if his servants, the servants of Satan, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. He loves faking spirituality. He loves using the church and sounding so spiritual. And he sounds so, oh, just so gracious. Even in Corinth, you remember Corinth? Look at this. We're bragging that here's a man, that we are an accepting church. We're a gracious church. This man who's now sleeping with his father's wife, we accept him. Look at us. Are you kidding me? Can you actually accept godlessness as a sign of your godliness satan can get you to do that 
And he can quote scripture too. Well, as long as a preacher can quote scripture, Satan could quote scripture. He is sneaky. And he's going to be out there trying to deceive you. There's a second thing you need to know. He's going to prevail. That's the thing. It's going to look like it's going to, it says the person holding him back is waiting until the end time. The person holding him back a couple times, verse 6 and verse 7. The, th- the thing is Satan, Satan is largely going to win. Can I tell you that? Satan is largely, I hate this. I hate this truth. It's just simply true that Satan is going to win a lot more people than Jesus will. Do you believe that? You discouraged by that? Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses. You know where you came from? You came from Satan's domain. I mean, we should know this. We were in it for a time, right? You used to walk this way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's at that? Who is the prince of the power of the air? It's Satan himself. The spirit now at work in those of disobedience, among whom we also lived. We did when we followed the passions of our flesh, when we do what we want to do, and we, we just our cravings are given ultimate sway in our lives, and we just do whatever we feel like doing. We are doing the devil's work. We're following exactly what he wants, right? And we are by nature children of, laugh, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's two groups of people. One of those who have chosen to come out of the world and be God's people. That's us, and we're trying our best to do this. And then you've got the second group, the rest of mankind, who aren't. Now, which group is bigger? Which group is bigger? Jesus said, Straight and narrow is the way to lead to life. There's, it's just a little path. Why is it so small, church? Why is there just a little path leading that way? Because very few people walk it. Jesus himself said that. The other way is Broadway. It's a paved 80-line highway. And do you know why it's a paved 80-line highway? Lots and lots of people go that way. So if you say in your head something... Well, here's the next verse. We're from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you get this? Satan is going to deceive more people than Jesus is going to convince. We will always be small. Our youth group will always be small. And you've got to embrace that. And you've got to accept the fact the reason it's small is because people won't embrace this way of life. And we we want to go through life. I don't like being rejected. I don't like being treated that way. But this is part of being small. Our college group will always be small. Our church on the hill, as big as it is to me growing up in a smaller church, it must be small. It must be because of the truth of this, right? Hit that button if you would. We often think to ourselves, everyone's pretty much okay. But according to Scripture, that's not true. The majority of the people you meet are not. And that's just the truth Paul said. I told you this when I was with you. You're always going to be a small subset of people. We're going to be the remnant. And there's one more thing he wants to say about Satan, and that is that he is true to his name. He's an absolute liar, and he uses all kinds of deceit. I want you to verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10 of this passage. It's just scary 
uh, what he does. Coming of the lawlessness, the lawless ones by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. He's going to do things that trick people with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. The people who don't love the truth will be easily swayed by the power of Satan to deceive. He is a master deceiver. That's what devil means, deceiver, liar. They refuse to love the truth and be saved, so God even sends them a strong delusion that they may believe what is false. I'm going to tell you he lies, and he's very smooth, and he's very good, and here's the thing. He appeals to your baser nature, and if you, if you are faced with the truth, here's what the truth of God is, and it challenges who you are. It makes you say no to yourself. That's why he says you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. There are things that you must say no to yourself about that you desperately want to say yes to, and you're open, you open your life to saying, if there's someone who can convince me that the Bible tells me I can say yes to this, when I know it clearly says no, I'm going to follow them because that's what I really want to do. There's always somebody who will twist Scripture and make you think that that thing that you've always been told you cannot do, you now can because you want to believe it. And so you'll bend the truth for it. He wants us to know about the truth of Satan. The first order of business in fighting this is to know and review the truth that you know. Know and review the truth that you know. Come to Bible class and don't just come to Bible class wanting to hear fluff and let's talk about this thing and just have this conversation and never settle anything. No, let's settle some things. Let's settle some truths and know that our lives are to be lived by this. Let's do this. But the second thing he says, I want you also to believe the truth. You notice that verse 12? In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had the pleasure in unrighteousness. They believe the truth. Here's the next screen. Once you, here's the option. Once you hear the truth, once you, uh, the first one is know the truth. Once you know the truth, you've got to decide, am I going to believe it or not? Many people know the truth. Fewer people believe the truth. So when you know the truth, when the truth has been presented, you either believe it or you choose not to believe it, because you would rather follow your druthers. That's the choice you have when you hear and know the truth. And so many of these people don't believe it. Instead, if I believe this, it will make me say no to myself. It will make me uh, have to change some things I don't like. And so instead of believing it, I'll just do what I want to do. Next screen. Now notice this. I will skip that right. This believing the truth, what's it mean to believe it? It means even when it doesn't appear to work that way, if God says it, I'm going to accept it as the truth. There are some truths, y'all, that I can preach because it's biblical, but I can't prove. I can't prove it to you. I can't prove it to the world. I just know God says it. I know that's what Scripture says. I happen to believe that all sexual immorality that God wants us to abstain from is harmful to us. He created us. He knows how we're to best operate these bodies he's given us. And he says, sexual immorality tears down the body. It's a sin against the body unlike any other. I can't explain it all. But here's the thing. I I think sexual immorality hurts us. Anybody believe that? You notice how hard it is to convince anybody in the world that's true? I've been sleeping around all my life, and I've been living with people all my life, and it doesn't seem to cause any damage to me. 
So all that warning God gives you, and he seems to go over the top and warning us about this and all the sermons we heard all our lives, it just never really amounts to anything. I, and I, I, look, I can't prove that. I can't give you stories. I can't give you anecdotes. I can't, I can't give you stats that prove that. But I believe it because God said it. There are truths that he tells me that I would prefer not to have to do. I'd prefer to avoid. I don't want to love my enemies. I don't want to have to overcome my anger. I don't, there's too many things he tells me that are meddlesome I don't want to do. And, and part of me says, just forget it, but you can't, you can't do that. Often what disrupts the journey between knowing the truth and believing the truth is something I really want to keep. And it sabotages that journey. And so the question I would ask at the end of this page is this. Next one, hit if you would. I hope. Maybe not. You know what it looks like when someone knows something but doesn't really believe it? When somebody knows something, this is the truth, but I just don't believe it. You know what it looks like? They don't do it. It's not really important to them. They're kind of suspicious that it's just kind of arbitrary. That's what a lot of Christians are like when they know the truth. I know I, know I should go to church. I know I should be a person who loves the community. I, I know I should, but they don't. Why don't they? Because they don't really believe it. And here's the thing. If we are Christians and we really want to live our lives the way God wants us to, not only will we pursue knowing the truth because he's made it knowable, but we will believe it when he says it. And we'll act on it. We'll do it. We won't fight him all the time. But there's a third thing he says at the, in verse 10. We also love the truth. This puts it a little above this. I, I want to know this, like when we're teaching teenage classes and stuff, how do we make them, I, I know how to make them know the truth, it's to present it and teach it. And I know, I know what to tell them is, this is what we believe, this is God's word, but I want to know how do we teach young people to love the truth? How do we teach adults to love the truth? How do you pursue scripture reading when you love the truth? Does it look different reading scripture when you love it as opposed to you just know you should be studying it because everybody tells you you need to be a daily Bible reader? You know the difference? And so in verse 10 he says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. They didn't love it. They were, fight, they were looking for reasons not to obey it. They were looking for reasons to argue against it. They were looking for, oh, well, that kind of clashes with this over here, and they want to dispense with it pretty easily. When you love the truth, you embrace it, and, you, and here's why, I think. If you believe the truth is the only way to be ready for judgment when it comes so that you can go to eternity with God, and you know that truth is the only way to get you there, you will love it because you love where it takes you. If you know that your baser human self is not your best self, and you know the best way to bring out your best self is to honor the truth of God as the one who's made me and the one who wants me to look like his son, and the best way to do that is to follow his word, I will love it. I won't just do it, I will love it. I love looking more like Jesus than I like looking like Spencer. And the key to looking like Jesus is to love that truth. 
And the way to be ready for when Jesus comes back is to love that truth and embrace it. And so I know it and I review it and I believe it and I love it and I consume it and I submit to it. And that's how you keep yourself from falling prey to this. One thing Paul does at the end of this letter is interesting. I think it's probably something he starts with 2 Thessalonians is this line in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. Guys, I want you to be able to know that what you're reading really is the word of God. So when I write a letter, look at the back and see if I signed it with my own hand. And if I didn't, discard it. I want you to have confidence that the words you read are the words of God that lead you to truth, that lead you to life, to lead you like Christ. We in the church believe this. We know this to be true. The words of God that are useful for making you like God are contained in this Bible that we hold and bring with us. The 66 books, words from God to help us become like God in this world and take us home to God. Trust those words. Know those words. God went to great trouble to provide you access to those words. Love them. Review them. Know them. Believe them. Do them. And let's get to Jesus. Let's get to God. And don't let anything less than that interfere in that pursuit. There's plenty of other things you can read. There's plenty of other preachers that are compelling and good with words, but if they don't line up with the words of this book, they're not your words. They're not God's words. Discard them and return back to these. I hope we can be a church that's firmly rooted in the truth and doesn't let these things, because y'all, the winds of this culture right now, the funny thing about our culture is not only does it want to present untruth, but it cares about proving to us that their untruth is actually biblical. They do spend some time looking at Scripture, trying to figure out how they can still keep their desires for unrighteousness and still keep it as the words of God. You've got to know the true word of God to not be held susceptible to that. And what it will tell you is God loves you and he's provided his word and his truth is enough. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. If there's anyone here who needs to respond to that this morning, maybe you've decided I want to be God's child, confess his name, be immersed in the waters of baptism, rise to walk through life, and this book become the key to you living this life with joy and confidence, not, not with concern and worry. And this morning, if that is your call to you, from the word, make it known as we stand, as we sing together.